Welcome to the EMJ podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Angela Goyle, a lady I met through a mutual friend who told me that he was very impressed by her. And so was I within minutes of chatting, and I think you will be too. Angela obtained her medical degrees from Leicester University, became a member of the Royal College of General Practitioners with distinction, and then obtained a diploma in family planning, as well as postgraduate training in dermatology with the University of London Diploma Award in 2009. She became interested in functional medicine and received qualification there in 2017. Angela is a busy and dedicated general practitioner in Leeds in the United Kingdom, is a lead clinician in clinical dermatology, and is an innovative disruptor in lifestyle medicine, something we're going to get into. She participates in academic and administrative activities, is dedicated to keeping fit with healthy eating, running 10K and half marathons, as well as hill walking. And believe me, Yorkshire's made for that. She's recently taken up paddleboarding. She certainly keeps fit. Angela is into yoga and meditation and speaks Hindi and Punjabi and very sweetly told me that her proudest achievement is raising two lovely children by herself, who are now all grown up. She told me a fun fact and proud moment was cycling coast to coast with her children, who were then aged nine and 11. Dr. Angela Goyle, a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks for inviting me. So I think a, a great way to start these chats is to understand what gets my guests to where they are. So tell us about becoming a doctor and taking on dermatology, which I've always been absolutely awful at, and your work as a clinical lead. Some folks will know what that means, some won't. So we'll come on to the other stuff shortly. Yeah, well, um, in terms of becoming a doctor, I knew from a very early age that I wanted a vocational profession. I wanted to do something that could make a difference to people's lives. And I've always been interested in health and biology and how the body works. So that was quite a clear decision from when I was young. And then, you know, having qualified as a doctor, going through all the training that you do as a junior doctor, I sort of enjoyed a bit of everything, really. And that's what led me to becoming a, a general practitioner. And I really enjoyed looking after when I did my general practice placement. I really enjoyed the continuity of care, seeing patients again and again, getting to know the families and the circumstances in which they live. So that's what led me to becoming a general practitioner. Now, after a few years of, of being a general practitioner, I actually started to realize that whilst I like the continuity of care and seeing the patients again and again, I found that from the medical science side, I was becoming more interested in specializing and that's what led me to dermatology. And I also felt that dermatology was a field that was quite neglected in medicine. I don't know about yourself, but in, in the UK, we, we don't get a lot of training in dermatology as part of general uh, medical training. So I felt that the patients who come in with dermatological problems were really distressed by them, you know, affecting them mentally, their self-esteem, but they had, and they had significant dermatological conditions that were stopping them sleeping as well, affecting their life in a, in a general way. But they weren't really 
I didn't feel that we're getting a really great service in the NHS. And part of that and the satisfaction of helping those patients when their skin conditions did improve led me down the field of dermatology. So I'm still a general practitioner, but I spend most of my time now in the NHS um, treating dermatological patients. And the clinical lead part of it? Yeah, so the role that I've undertaken with Wood Medical Group is basically as well as delivering the service in terms of seeing the patients and you know organizing the clinic so organizing we also within our service we're now responsible for community dermatology for the whole of the Leeds area so we're also designing pathways for the whole of the Leeds area to make the dermatology service more efficient to make it more accessible to patients to increasing the level of education within other professionals pharmacists nurses paramedics, doctors, you know, for all these professionals, we're increasing the level of dermatology skills. So my role as a clinical lead is designing the clinical pathways, you know, managing other clinicians and managing the whole service as a whole. And I do actually enjoy that part of it. I feel I can make a bigger difference looking at it as an overview, as a service for leads, as well as the individual patient. So talk to us a bit about overcoming unexpected challenges being a single parent and having a demanding job as a GP and how life's not always smooth. You come across as a very positive person and it struck me that challenges and experiences can actually help one to create a wonderful balanced life. Yeah, and I'm happy to share this because I feel that what I've learned through these challenges could help others as well. So for example, you said I'm a positive person. So I I don't really think of myself as a positive person I don't think that I you know was born naturally positive it's something that I've had to learn as I face challenges and something that I have to practice on a daily basis so for example I have a gratitude practice where I do gratitude journaling so I write down it's very simple I used to do it with my children when they were younger didn't know it was called gratitude practice or gratitude journaling then but I used to ask the children you know in the mornings and we'd say right think of three things that you're really grateful for today and I've continued to do that throughout my life and I think that's some of the learned positivity that I have but the challenge that I have that I had and we all have challenges in life and they come unexpectedly you know you think life is going great you're very lucky and then something happens and you think how could this possibly happen to me I didn't expect this ever so when my children were very young you know very sadly some difficult circumstances in my marriage and um, me and my ex-husband ended up splitting up and I ended up in a situation where I was largely bringing up the children on my own and having to relocate and it was all very sudden so it was all very difficult. I had to find a new job, I had to relocate to a new city and I had to bring up two children who were then two and one on my own which I'd never, you know, you, you don't go into marriage and having children to sort of then expect to find yourself doing everything on your own so that that was a huge challenge for me and also I think with my beliefs about marriage emotionally that was a big part of it why it was so difficult so yeah I had to learn to have this positive attitude to help me get through that and you know when I talk a bit later about lifestyle medicine and mental well-being a lot of the things I had to learn and practice for myself to get through that difficult period As you're talking about that, I'm reflecting on things that two people have told me, both of which I've discussed on this podcast. The first was a gentleman who's been 
a huge help in my life personally dealing with some difficult circumstances dove baron and i commend everyone to check out that podcast and dove's work he says that if you have the attitude that you deserve something you deserve nothing you're entitled to nothing be grateful for everything it's a fantastic approach it sounds trite but it's a fantastic approach i i I loved hearing what you said, and it's a sort of an affirmation that the approach of positivity, you know, if you think you're going to be happy or you think you're going to be sad, you're right. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Because I think, you know, what I've learned, you know, certainly these things were not things that I feel were natural, although my family, I think they did, they were responsible for, you know, making me sort of, you know, for my mindset. I think they did help me bring me up trying to have a positive mindset. But I did actually have to try to implement this myself when I face these challenges. And the other things that I found really helpful when you're going through difficult times, one of them is physical activity. So keeping, you know, going for a run, yoga, anything physical and active. The other thing was about, you know, you said about believing that what you want to get in life is what you will have and feeling happy rather than feeling sad. So understanding that you attract things into your life based on how you think yeah and probably the other thing is taking risks as well which was harder for me you know in this situation of being the sole breadwinner for the family and and raising two children on my own and being responsible for them but it's still important I think to take risks and believe in the best outcome yeah so I'd like to talk a bit about your background you're of South Asian heritage and Mm -hmm. I saw that you did a sabbatical in India volunteering at a hospital in Madhya Pradesh I'd like you to tell us about that experience, because I'm sure you saw a range of diseases we rarely see in the UK, although maybe more so with ease of travel pre-pandemic. I always loved doing such trips whenever I was invited to teach, and I received much more than I gave. And I have great affection for India from my travels there. And maybe we can swap recipes at (laughs) some other point. But I'd love to hear a little bit about your time in Madhya Pradesh. Yeah, so actually, even before I became a doctor, before I applied to medical school and during my time at medical school, I always knew that a big part of becoming a doctor would be that one day I wanted to go to India, where my parents are from, and actually practice medicine there in a voluntary capacity. So that had been a dream of mine for a long time. So as soon as I got the chance to do so, I took six months out in between my training years And, you know, it'd been a dream for such a long time. And we managed to find a hospital that was run by volunteers. And the chief medical officer actually lived in the UK, but traveled there frequently to also run this voluntary hospital. So he was really pleased to have us on board. And and we were likewise equally happy to be part of his team for a short while. And it was an amazing experience. You know, I really felt that we were contributing I was seeing a lot of illnesses, like you mentioned, that we wouldn't see in the UK. And that's what I was expecting to learn more. But actually, I learned a whole more than and then just seeing about these diseases. So we saw, for example, malaria was as common as the common cold where we were working, typhoid, TB. But interestingly, and this is even in the tiny villages, so we would travel out. The hospital was in a place called Gwalia in Madhya Pradesh. And Gwalia is one of the big cities there. And we would travel out. People couldn't travel into the city because of cost. 
to access healthcare. So we would travel out to outreach clinics. And you know, I was expecting to see people really unwell with TB and typhoid, and, and there were. But we also had cues and cues who were actually the worried well, just like we see in the UK. And that was really surprising for me to see that. And, it, and for some people, it seemed like it was an outing, come and see the doctor who didn't actually have any health problems, but they wanted to have a checkup. Hmm. So I found that really interesting. <laughs> Yeah, it is always very different when one goes to such places. I had a similar experience and, you know, I think they found me a curiosity and it was sort of like the day's entertainment to check out the visitor from England. So changing tack a little bit, you've been a a writer, co-director and presenter of The Health Show, a columnist for Yorkshire Post, and you've appeared on various national TV programmes such as Steph's Packed Lunch and Channel 4, GB News, I'd like to hear about your work in the lay media, what you did, you enjoyed it, and how accessing lots of people can make a big difference, right? You can effectively deliver health education to a massive audience instead of one at a time. Right. So this is my journey into the media actually stemmed from, you know, I talked earlier about taking risks. So I was at a point in my career where I wasn't feeling very fulfilled. So I was working as a GP. And I was starting to feel quite robotic in that career, that I was, you know, issuing the same medications, following clinical guidelines, but I wasn't getting the satisfaction from medicine. You know, the reason why I actually went into medicine in the first place, just wasn't getting that fulfillment. So I started to look at other things that I could do with my skills, and I wasn't quite sure in what direction I was going. But the direction turned out to be the whole lifestyle medicine setting up in medics. Going into the media was part of that journey of exploring what else I could do with my skills. And as medics, you know, we, we are communicators. We have to communicate with patients of all different abilities. And we have to adapt our communication styles when talking to different patients, when talking to clinicians. So going into the media didn't feel too difficult for me because I was talking to the public and communicating in that style rather than talking as a one-to-one. And it was part of my career journey, I suppose, doing something different, taking a risk, trying something new. And I found that I really enjoyed it. And I also found that once you start doing work with the media, you then get approached to do more and more work. And that's really how it built up and how I started doing the national media work people had seen something about me on social media then they would approach me but it's something I really enjoyed I really enjoyed imparting the medical knowledge to the public and on a personal level I really enjoyed coming out of the healthcare setting and going into a very different environment you know meeting I could say celebrities behind the scenes when we were in between filming talking on television live yeah I really enjoyed it and building up that that skill set myself Okay. Well, I've done a little bit of it myself and share your feeling. It's actually, it's great to have that insight into the, well, firstly, how many other very, very skilled and talented people there are. And it's, it's not an easy matter to talk to a camera and to do it in a manner that's engaging and not looking robotic. And you clearly have mastered it. So let's dig into the concepts of lifestyle medicine. And for those who aren't familiar with the concept, maybe start with the basics, just like you did with me when we first talked. Tell us about the basics and how you got interested in it. 
Yeah, okay. Well, I'll start with how I got interested in it because then it sort of follows on and makes sense about what it is and why it's helpful. So at the time, I was working as a GP and I was working in a student practice with a student population. And, you know, these are, you know, younger people, we assume they should be fitter and healthier. And I started to become quite disillusioned about the lifestyles that my patients were leading. For example, you know, having, I mean, we've all done it when we were young, so I'm not being judgmental here or not, but, you know, we've all had a lack of sleep, too much alcohol, not looking after ourselves nutritionally. And I was seeing the impact of this on their health. So, for example, I remember a young girl, she came and she'd been investigated by numerous clinicians, been to the hospital. And then when I took a detailed lifestyle history, I found out that she was drinking Um, Well, she'd actually said earlier in two clinicians, she was having four cups of coffee a day, which didn't sound, you know, terrible enough to cause her palpitations. But when I inquired a bit further, I found out she was having four spoons of coffee in each cup. (laughs) (laughs) She said to keep me awake. And then on top of that, she was having energy drinks and she was just going through the day overdosing on caffeine and, you know, Obviously, then I realized this is the cause of her palpitations. She was also being investigated for migraines and urinary problems. And it all stemmed down to this one thing. I was also, you know, seeing lots of patients with depression. I felt quite robotic in the sense that I was following clinical guidelines, prescribing medications, but not getting that satisfaction of really helping people. And I found that when I was digging deeper into the lifestyle causes and treating patients with lifestyle interventions, that's when I started to feel more fulfilled in treating the patients because I was not having to use as many medication for them. I was not having to refer them on for more and more investigations. And the patients were getting better and the outcomes were improving. So I wanted to research this a little bit more about, well, what are the evidence? What what else is there to know about lifestyle, about nutrition, the things that I'd never learnt in medical school, nutrition, sleep, stress, physical activity. These are the pillars of lifestyle medicine. So I went off and that's when I studied functional medicine to learn more about this. And I just became more and more interested in it. So so the pillars of lifestyle medicine that I learned about, the ones that I've just mentioned, but also connecting with others, having that connection with yourself, with your community, with nature, And reducing toxins, so for example, the caffeine that I mentioned, or alcohol, or smoking, or drugs. So so they are the main pillars of lifestyle medicine. And these are things that are not really covered in the medical curriculum or in junior doctor training. You know, you say that you need to improve your diet, do more exercise. And I think the issue is how you get people to buy into it. I'm obviously 100% convinced, and there's data on things like being in a natural environment. You know, I certainly find if dealing with stress, just going for a walk in the woods is enormously sort of grounding. I guess it's getting people to buy into it. And that takes us nicely into you starting Inspired Medics. Take us on that journey. What led you to build a company and not just use this as part of your practice and to encourage others to you know to get trained to be lifestyle medicine practitioners not just doctors right take us on that journey 
So after I did this functional medicine training, which was quite an intense course, and it was over a week's learning, and it was quite expensive as well, but it wasn't actually, and, and I thoroughly enjoyed it, and it really helped me. But I felt that this wasn't actually the course I was looking for when I first became interested in lifestyle medicine. I was a busy GP, you know, busy raising two children on my own. What I actually wanted was a weekend course, two days, learn the basics of lifestyle medicine and how to implement it in my practice. But that didn't exist at that time. This is back in 2017. So I thought actually the best thing I can do with all this knowledge that I've gained is to create this kind of education that's accessible because not everybody can spend thousands of pounds and take a week off work. So what I felt clinicians needed was to have all this information condensed into one or two days and I also felt that the way it was delivered should be very enjoyable as well, because it isn't, it is obviously for our patients, that's what leads us to go and study more. But with lifestyle medicine compared to any other medical course I've ever been on, I actually found all this knowledge was improving my own health and well-being as well. And I was connecting with other like-minded healthcare professionals who were really interested in this. So I felt that this kind of learning should be fun, felt really strongly about that. And it should be about connecting with like-minded peers. So I started running smaller events, just testing the water. You know, like I said, I was taking a risk, doing something very different. And I was worried I might be judged about why, why are you bringing in this kind of education? You know, people would be asking me, what is this? And is it even evidence-based? So I started very small. The first few events had about 30 or 40 doctors and healthcare professionals at them. And then this led up event had 250 healthcare professionals, mostly GPs. But they actually also not just came from the UK, they came from all over Europe as well. And we had 250 with another 100 or 200 on the waiting list. And we made the event really good fun. So in the breaks, we had personal trainers doing exercise snacks. We had yoga workshops that you could participate in because the idea was not just to learn the evidence for lifestyle medicine for your patients. So one of your modules is entitled Why the Future of Healthcare is Lifestyle Medicine. Care to share? Yes. So we've gone on to produce digital courses, but the first big event was actually an in-person conference in Leeds. And we, we actually called it the future of healthcare is lifestyle medicine. So this is something I strongly believe. We know that, and we've known this for, you know, the very, if you look back at WHO definition of health, going back, you know, to the 1940s, I think it was, we know that health is a combination of genetic, environmental and socioeconomic factors. So in order to improve the health globally of people or of our patients individually, we need to pay attention to all of these factors. So as well as uh, medication and surgery, we also need to be incorporating lifestyle modifications for all our patients. And patients would know, obviously, like you said, we all know that physical activity and good nutrition is important for us, but it's important for clinicians, I think, to tackle this at the time of when patients are not doing so well in their health. Also, if you look on a global scale, obesity, you know, that's tripled across the globe. We know that cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of mortality globally. Depression is increasing, cancer, you know, all these chronic diseases are massively increasing. 
We have 39% of adults overweight globally in 2016. And we know that these illnesses can be prevented and can be improved with lifestyle modifications. And the WHO states that 80% of cardiovascular disease, stroke, type 2 diabetes is preventable. So I really feel that clinicians need to be equipped with the knowledge and the evidence for lifestyle medicine, because, you know, we we work in an evidence-based paradigm and, you know, we all know intuitively, you know, lay people know, clinicians know that lifestyle modifications are beneficial to health, but I think understanding the evidence for it and how it can be applied to specific diseases before we can motivate our patients, we have to motivate ourselves. You know, we have to believe that these interventions are very powerful. And also you talked about buy-in of the patients, motivating patients to actually make these changes in their lifestyle. Then we have to learn about motivational interviewing techniques. You know, I certainly, I would talk to patients before surgery, whether it was for diverticulosis or gallbladder disease, whatever it might have been, and you're trying to to teach them or explain to them, I should say. But I think society's got to bear some responsibility because being put into the the box that we're the solution. You know, I know you've told me to do these ten things, doctor, but I just want to take a pill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think you know this is not a problem for clinicians to solve on their own. You know, we need governments on board, we need schools on board, we need people on board in general, we need our populations on board. And, you know, the fact is that society, and I've seen the change, you know, even over the past 20 or 30 years, that the lifestyles that we live, society encourages us to be more sedentary. You know, we, we use our cars more rather than walking physical activity is not part of our daily lifestyles whereas if you look at the blue zones where people are the healthiest across the globe and they live to 100 very very healthily with a mental and physical well-being i'm pleased you mentioned the blue zones for those people not familiar check it out it's the concept of places around the world that have it's not just the lifespan it's the health span in these parts of the world where people eat you know, an, a more natural diet, no processed foods, more protein from fish than meat. They drink some wine, they do meaningful exercise, they have human connection, and they avoid chronic diseases. So they live a long life, but rather than living a long life punctuated by disease. You know, just the other day, I was catching a train with a friend, and on the other, it was a morning, and just the other side of the platform, there's a schoolgirl she's sitting down whereas we were standing she's sitting down looking at her phone drinking a can of um yeah eating crisps at, you know at like eight o'clock in the morning i mean it's bonkers yeah yeah sounds like my children <laughs> <laughs> oh <laughs> now you've gone and undone the whole darn thing yeah. well i'll tell you what let's let's rapidly escape from that yeah but, but, but that's the thing though even with all this knowledge that I have and what I'm doing with my work you know to sort of even change the mindset of my own children is the hardest thing (laughs) yeah well it's it's it's, it's not hard it's impossible yeah they're not they're not going to listen to you yeah and I I think I think you're quite right society is encouraging us to do all this to sleep less you know we have Netflix and it's easy to just carry on watching more and more episodes we eat more processed foods we're easier to eat processed 
foods than it is to cook something unprocessed mm -hmm. at home. Mm -hmm. So, so this burden of health isn't for clinicians to solve. It's for us to jointly solve. But we have to be part. I think being part of that solution is really embracing and understanding the lifestyle interventions. Yeah, I'm a hundred percent bought on you. So moving on, another of your modules addresses the facts about fats and lipids. Give everyone who's listening in the 30,000 foot view. Non-medical listeners are confused by the varying information. Good fat, bad fat, all that stuff. Yeah, OK. So I'll try and give a simplistic view. And it is simplistic for me because we had a fantastic cardiologist present this module. Essentially, I think everybody's heard about cholesterol. And cholesterol has sort of become the demon since about the 80s and the 90s and thought to be one of the main causes of cardiovascular disease. Uh, and what people really need to understand as well about cholesterol is it actually is very important, vital molecule, in fact, for the body. You know, we need it to produce our sex hormones, vitamin D, cell membranes. So it's not really just this evil thing that causes heart disease. It's been portrayed to be. And actually, if the focus wasn't only on cholesterol, but it was on other factors. So we know that being resistant to insulin, obesity and metabolic syndrome, which are related and inflammation in the body. These are the factors we really need to focus on rather than just treating cholesterol. We know that lifestyle modifications can bring about regression of atherosclerosis, that's furring of the arteries, which people have heard of without medications. And that's been known since the 1990s. You know, and with regards to cholesterol, for your medical listeners, actually, it's been found that measuring triglycerides and the ratio of that to high density lipoprotein, HDL, is a better predictor than just looking at cholesterol. And in fact, for prevention, so primary prevention, when people haven't had any heart disease at all, the med medications that we use to lower cholesterols, statins, there's very little evidence. The evidence is actually quite weak of how beneficial you have taking a statin is for primary prevention. So it's a very complex topic. I don't know if that's clarified it at all or made it more confusing. No, I think probably the key takeaway is that you can't summarise something complicated with a throwaway sentence. The analogy that I use is, you can't look at a single photograph taken from a two-hour film and know what the film's about because it's nuanced. Yes, it might be about an assassin or it might be a comedy, but that's all you're going to get from a single photograph, maybe. You're not going to get all the nuance. So there's another aphorism. Sorry about the male focus, is that it's one should breakfast like a king, lunch like a prince, and sup like a pauper. Is there any truth in that? And what about intermittent fasting? Is it real, wise, or just plain kooky? Yeah, so so there is actual studies and evidence for, for both of these. So the studies show that people who eat earlier in the day lose more weight. And physiologically, it makes sense because we have a circadian rhythm, also known as a body clock. And we know that this operates with different hormones being peaking at different times. So our timing, it's not just what we eat and the calories. Because it's again, like with the cholesterol point that you've raised, we've tried to make cholesterol the demon and, and the cause of, of heart disease. And it's not, it's much more complex. And similarly with obesity, all the focus has gone on to calories. 
just how many calories you consume. Actually, it's much more complex than that. Calories are, are a unit that's measured in a lab. You know how the energy produced when something is burned, essentially. Our bodies are much more complicated than that. Uh, you know, we have various hormones floating around, insulin, ghrelin, which is a hunger hormone. So the timing of when we eat, as well as the calories that we consume and the quality of what we eat, this all matters. Yes. So eating earlier in the day has been shown to be beneficial. And yes, there is evidence for intermittent fasting. It may be that part of it is because we are reducing the number of calories that we're consuming, but also it's to do with the physiology of the timing as well. And the fact that for a period of time, we are not having anything at all in our bodies, which allows our hormones to balance out. And if you look at it from an evolutionary point of view, you know, we were not designed to eat 24 hours a day nonstop. And we talked about society earlier. This is a, a modern phenomenon that food is available to us readily. You know, just by dialing your phone or um, typing into your app, you can have something delivered to your door within 20 minutes now. And uh, we were not designed to live like that. We were designed to have periods of hunger as well as periods of feasting, famine and feast. Yeah, it's truly interesting. The, the fact that it used to be that shortage of food was the cause of death and disease. And it's now quite the opposite, overabundance of food. Mm. So what about the effects of stress, anxiety on, on general health? Can you say a word or two about that and also about burnout, stress specifically in medical professionals? Yeah, I mean, with, with the stress, I think we all know as whether we're lay people or clinicians, that stress does impact our health, whether that's something immediate, such for example, you know, anxiety, which may manifest in physical symptoms, such as headaches or irritable bowel syndrome, and people are not necessarily aware that it's stress that causes that. Or you might, it, there may be an awareness of it that stress is then leading on to depression or anxiety. So stress is a huge factor. I mean, in my dermatology patients, I see a lot of eczema, psoriasis being flared up by periods of stress. Alopecia as well, you know, a big trigger for that, for alopecia areata is stress. So it's certainly an, a cause, a trigger for ill health, and it's certainly an effect. And also it's important to say that you know, our bodies were evolutionarily designed for short periods of acute stress. So that's the saber-toothed tiger analogy. You know, if you see a saber-toothed tiger back, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, you know, the body was designed to have a stress response, a fight or flight response, where the hormones would surge, cortisol, adrenaline, and you'd have that energy. Then you know, your heart rate would increase, the blood would be pumping around your body and you could run away. The problem that we have now is we're not having these acute short periods of stress. The stress that we're facing now and all of us, and I've talked about my own challenges, which caused me personal stress. And I still have ongoing stress on a day to day basis due to work, family, etc. We're suffering with chronic stress and our bodies weren't designed to be in this constant state of lower grade, but ongoing stress, which can persist for days, weeks or months. And that is what is well known to be linked to many diseases, you know, heart disease, obesity, type two diabetes. We, we, we know that there's a, a big link there. And what we don't practice on a day to day basis and 
now that I do practice it, I do find it surprising when I talk to my patients and colleagues that people don't really take the time out to practice de-stressing. So that, and I say to my patients, I say, look, this could be something simple. Do you, do you have 10 minutes a day for yourself to do something nice that you enjoy that will make you feel calmer? And many of them say to me, no, I don't have that time. And then it's understandable, you know, why people don't. They might be working two or three jobs to make ends meet and looking after a family, cooking and cleaning, etc. But when they vocalize it and say, no, I don't have 10 minutes to myself, they sort of then, the penny sort of drops that, you know, what is the point in life if I can't have 10 minutes to do something that I really enjoy for a day? So when I talk about stress to my patients, I say just simple things like taking 10 minutes to have a relaxation bath, do some relaxation breathing, or go for a walk in the park. This is the kind of thing we need to build into our everyday lives. And it's especially important for medical professionals with the amount of stress that medical professions ourselves can be under. And the care profession that we're in you know we think about doing things for others it's important that we fill our own cup first before we can then care for others yeah absolutely so one of the sort of approaches to dealing with stress i'm a pretty new convert to the power of approaches like meditation mindfulness mm. i'm certainly not that flexible but i believe yoga's also proven benefits Again, can you give us a teaser, if you will, about what your course teaches in regards to those modalities? Yeah, so we have a whole module on, we have a few modules, I think, actually, on stress. We have one on stress, there's one on meditation, and these actually have been presented by psychiatrists. So we have a consultant psychiatrist doing a fantastic module on stress relief, which is helpful, like I said, for our patients. But actually, if you to do this module, you take away the points for your own life, I think, first, because you realize how much of it you're not doing. And you start to recognize, I mean, I think the first thing with stress is to recognize that you're under stress. And many of us don't, we just carry on trying to get through the things that are causing us stress without realizing the effect that it's having on us. And you mentioned meditation. You know, there's, there's lots, of, we bring in the evidence as well. So for example, we have a re free resource hub on our site and there's a fantastic blog that's been written jointly by uh, she's actually a histopathologist but she's also a yoga teacher in her spare time and um, she's written that together with a pain specialist and I chip in as well so there's three of us writing that blog and we discuss some of the evidence for meditation on chronic pain because we had a pain specialist involved in this I mean, there's, there's evidence for many other conditions as well, but we've particularly focused on chronic pain in this particular blog. So that's free to have a look at on our website. So I love asking all my guests a version of this question as we reach the end. If you had three wishes that would lead to improvements in, in health, in lifestyle, if you will, what would those wishes be? Yeah, this is a great question. You know, wouldn't it be great to have these actual wishes come true but I think that it would be to take a step back and to you know become so focused on evidence-based medicine and super specialists in medicine and we become really focused on the detail so I would say my first wish is that we take a step back to look at health as a whole from an individual level and a global and societal level and think what can we do in society and what can governments do? What can schools do 
to bring about better health for people in general. This is whether people are suffering from disease or whether they're healthy because health is actually continuum. It's not that you just wake up one day with a chronic disease. You know, this is something that has been building up over the years. So my first wish would be to look at health from a societal point of view and make it easier for people to live a healthy lifestyle. You know, many people want to, but it's just so difficult, you know, with the 24 hour food culture and sedentary lifestyles and stressful lifestyles. My second wish would be to look at stress in the workplace, particularly for medics, you know, as a caring profession, we need to be recognizing the impact that stress at work has on well-being. And I don't think this in medics, we seem to have this real attitude of bravado. You know, you carry on working when you're ill, you carry on working when you're stressed. You never admit that you're stressed. Now, I think it really has to be about filling our own cups up first, recognizing if we're stressed because we don't want more and more clinicians becoming affected with burnout. And then my third wish would be that clinicians really embrace the, the philosophy of lifestyle medicine and understand the power of lifestyle medicine and the benefits this can bring to their own health and to their patients' health. And, you know, that we, we I don't know if it's four wishes, but if I can combine in my third wish that this is actually taught in medical schools and in all medical training. Yeah, I think those are wonderful and we will grant you that fourth wish. Um, Sadly, that's all we have time for today. But thanks so much to our guest, Dr. Angela Goyle, for taking the time to join us today. And frankly, for all you're doing for patients and to expand knowledge of what's possible for us as practitioners. Angela, thanks so much. Thank you so much for inviting me, Jonathan. I've really enjoyed coming on and speaking about a subject that I'm very passionate on. So thanks so much for having me. You clearly are. And in our conversations, uh, it inspired me to learn more. And if you want to learn more about Inspired Medics, check out the show notes. And Angela is very, very accessible. And an, as you've heard, an utterly delightful lady. Well, folks, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please like us on social media. That's the EMJ podcast. Subscribe for future episodes and dig into the archives. There's a bunch of wonderful podcasts there, some of which I mentioned with Dr. Nigel Guest and Dove Barron, amongst others. And please join us next week for another foray into the amazing world of medicine. Until then, stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now.